What do climate change and the COVID pandemic have in common when it comes to public health? Climate One conversations feature oil companies and environmentalists, Republicans and Democrats, the exciting and the scary aspects of the climate challenge. I'm Greg Dalton. Human incursion into remote ecosystems can have far-reaching effects on our health and well-being. Deforestation and changes in land use, often to produce food, disrupt delicate ecological and water systems. They also facilitate new and potentially dangerous interactions between people and other organisms. And those are the contacts between humans and animals that keep disease biologists up at night because those are the best opportunities for spillover events to occur. Brian Allen is Associate Professor of Entomology at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. He studies the ecology of infectious diseases, particularly those transmitted by the bite of infected ticks and mosquitoes. The novel coronavirus that jumped from bats to humans is highlighting how challenging it can be to manage infectious disease. We're finding that treating COVID-19 is extremely difficult. Well, it's going to be more difficult or virtually impossible to treat climate change. You can't treat climate change. Barbara Gottlieb is Director of Environment and Health at Physicians for Social Responsibility, where she guides national work on climate, energy, and air quality. She authored PSR's reports on the health implications of fossil fuels, including Too Dirty, Too Dangerous, Why Health Professionals Reject Natural Gas, and Coal's Assault on Human Health. Action to safeguard the climate has paled in comparison to the response to the coronavirus. What we need to do now is recognize that we have a window of opportunity to really flatten the curve when it comes to climate change. Aaron Bernstein is Interim Director of the Center for Climate Health and the Global Environment at the Harvard School of Public Health. As a pediatrician at Boston Children's Hospital, he's passionate about the health impacts of the climate crisis on children's health and advancing the well-being of children around the world. All three guests joined us from their homes to explore the implications of COVID and climate for public health, beginning with some fundamental truths now staring us in the face, as Aaron Bernstein explains. I think what COVID is showing us is is really that nature is trying to tell us something. Uh, Nature has given us a few shots over the bow here with emerging infections. COVID is the most recent example, Uh, but we've got MERS, SARS, HIV, Uh, pandemic influenza. These are all diseases that that have come into people uh, from animals. And and if you look at these emerging diseases more broadly, it's uh, the majority are are wild animals. And and so what ultimately is staring us in the face is the reality that um, we have taken advantage of nature to the point where uh, we're putting ourselves at risk. And and on top of that, uh, we know very clearly what we can do to uh, make a difference to prevent things like COVID. And, and among the things that really matter are, are climate solutions. And in fact, in many ways, pandemic solutions are climate solutions. And, and now is an important time to be talking about those. So uh, be specific, what are some things that could be could reduce pandemics that could also uh, reduce uh, carbon pollution and climate change? What are some of those co-solutions? Well, a big one is deforestation. Uh, you know, we think about tropical forest loss as sort of a, a moral crisis. You know, what a, what a terrible loss to uh, everyone uh, and, and particularly to the species that uh, are in uh, tropical forests. But we know from many examples that, that chopping down forests increased risks of the spillover of pathogens uh, from animals into people. Uh, we don't know that exactly with COVID, um, but in other bat uh, diseases that have come out of bats, in Ebola, the, you may remember the 
most recent um, bad Ebola outbreak in West Africa, the evidence suggests that deforestation in West Africa actually uh, may have pushed bats into parts of West Africa that they weren't in before. And, and as you may know, the, the most recent Ebola uh, epidemic in West Africa was, was in a part of Africa that, that they haven't happened in before. Uh, and so, you know, preventing deforestation is a climate solution. Preventing deforestation is also a solution to prevent disease emergence. Uh, Brian, burning fossil fuels uh, sorry, is another good example. So burning fossil fuels is also a climate and a health thing? Yeah. I mean, you know, we know air pollution <clears throat> is bad for everyone's health in all kinds of ways. And the evidence we have suggests that particularly with respiratory infections like COVID, and, and we don't have direct evidence on COVID, but in its first cousin, which was SARS, you know, people exposed to more air pollution were twice as likely to die based upon the evidence we have. And so um, we have evidence that uh, air pollution not only can make people sicker, uh, but it may make people more likely to get infected with these pathogens as well. So burning less fossil fuel, which in China kills an estimated 1.6 million on an annual basis, uh, may be contributing to the spread of diseases like COVID there and, and elsewhere. Brian Allen, how do you see the connections between the spread of disease, as Ari just said, and, and uh, the use of fossil fuels, the COVID and climate connection? Yeah, well, I completely agree with Ari's answer that, uh, that some of the drivers of climate change are also drivers of infectious disease emergence. And so land use change is a big one in terms of uh, altering uh, native ecosystems in ways that is uh, exacerbating climate change as well as facilitating the emergence of novel infections in human populations. In terms of solutions, the problems are parallel in the sense that it requires large collective action um, that has to cross uh, political boundaries, uh, cultural boundaries, and uh, result in an effective response that can limit the further spillover of infections that can cause pandemics uh, in the future. And it will require a similarly large-scale response to tackle the problem of climate change. Barb Gottlieb, I think it's fair to say that if you ask an average American person about climate change, they would think about uh, smokestacks, maybe polar pairs, maybe tailpipes. They wouldn't necessarily think about human lungs or or personal health. Why isn't, if we just heard there's such a strong connection between climate and personal health, why don't more people think of it that way in, in that frame? Well, I think some people are still thinking about climate change as something that's either out there or in our future. Uh, those are the images that we were given early on, and they still, still stick. So you mentioned polar bears. I'm afraid polar bears might still be, for a lot of people, kind of the, the iconic image of climate change. But really, what we're finding is that more and more people are recognizing that climate change is real, it's happening now, and it's affecting their health. So polling shows us that. And um, I, I think also people's lived experience is telling them that. So if you lived in California and you lived through the wildfires, you know what the impact was on, on air quality and on health. And in fact, some of the particulate matter that was generated from those fires blew all the way across the country and reached Baltimore. Every region of the country is having its own climate impacts. In the, in the Southwest, it might be drought and heat which, uh, you know, the heat effects can be as severe as heat stroke, which can be fatal. Uh, the Midwest experiences extreme storms and floods uh, with uh, water contamination, impact on agriculture, and so on all the way across the country and all the way through people's lived experience. I think the tide has turned. I think people recognize climate change as a real problem. More and more people are recognizing it as, as essentially human caused. 
and they're seeing and they're feeling the health consequences. I certainly know that the doctors in my own organization are seeing more patients presenting with um, symptoms and diseases that they can link to climate change. And we'll get into a little more later about sort of the professional, the medical profession and their engagement on climate change. Over the past few weeks, we've seen increasing news coverage of how expanding our agricultural footprint can help lead to the spread of infectious diseases like COVID-19. So we should just cut back, right? Well, it may not be that simple, according to an article published last year in the journal Nature Sustainability. We spoke to one of the article's authors, Professor Jason Rohr, who told us population growth might make it hard to stop encroaching on wildlands, and climate change makes the problem even more complex. In the next uh, 70 years, 2100, we expect about 11 billion people on the planet. We're expecting to see about uh, 10 to the 9 hectare increase in agricultural production to feed all these people, which is about the uh, surface area of the U.S. I think that there's going to be um, some positives and uh, negatives associated with disease. So I think if agriculture can outpace uh, the pace of human population growth, then we might see improvements in nutrition. And nutrition is really important for fighting diseases. We expect to see greater contacts between wildlife and humans and domesticated animals and humans because of more people, more domestic animals to feed all those people, and a greater encroachment on natural areas that could increase the risk of transmission of pathogens from animals to humans. More people on the planet uh, means that there's probably going to be more contacts among individuals, higher densities of people that can facilitate um, the transmission of directly transmitted pathogens. You're seeing this right now uh, with the new coronavirus in urban settings where humans are densely um, populated. We may see reduced yields or need to make adjustments to where we're growing uh, many of our crops because of climate change. So that could create a scenario where we're feeding less people with our, our current production. It's not clear whether climate change is going to increase disease generally or is going to cause shifts in the distribution of diseases or maybe increase particular types of diseases and cause declines in others. But I think we definitely uh, need to be thinking about uh, land use policies and if we can facilitate uh, feeding people without increasing disease, that is obviously going to be preferred. That was Jason Rohr, professor at the University of Notre Dame. A lot of uh, really staggering points in there, particularly the idea that a land size as large as the United States, Brian Allen, will be added into agricultural production, probably from rainforest, tropical areas. That's going to bring uh, humans in contact with species and disease. It sounds like more people, more food, more land, more disease. What can be done about that? Yeah, and, and further compounding the issue is that some of the land we're currently using for agriculture may become less suitable uh, for production as well under climate change. So not only will we need more land to feed a growing human population, but some of what is currently being used may become vulnerable to climate shocks. It's going to be an issue that is going to intersect with infectious disease emergence because we've seen a pattern where uh, development of natural areas, typically for agricultural production, but also for timber extraction, uh, harvesting of other natural resources creates inroads into those areas that facilitate human wildlife uh, interaction. And so, for example, in Central Africa, uh, logging creates roads that allows uh, hunters access to areas that were previously inaccessible. 
Uh, they hunt wildlife for not only for uh, substance, uh, subsistence consumption, but also for a global wildlife trade. Um, and those are the, the contacts between humans and animals that uh, keep disease biologists up at night because those are the best opportunities for spillover events to occur. Uh, so you have humans hunting wildlife, uh, coming in direct contact with the animals, butchering and consuming them. Uh, we think historically this is the way many infectious diseases have entered into the human population. Uh, HIV likely got its start uh, through human consumption of non-human primates. Uh, historically, Ebola outbreaks likely uh, followed a similar pathway. Um, so not only do you have this issue of uh, loss of natural area to agriculture, but it also creates more opportunities for humans to come in contact with wildlife than they had before. Interventions will require, you know, regulation, uh, you know, try to enforce laws against wildlife consumption and wildlife hunting, uh, but also, you know, culturally sensitive approaches that take into account that reasons people are hunting bushmeat could be driven by lack of economic opportunity and lack of alternative sources of protein. And so try to address the, the actual problem that's uh, leading to these behaviors in the first place. All right, Bernstein, one of the other points in that uh, clip from Jason Rohr was the increased urbanization in the world. We know that the world is urbanizing very rapidly. Uh, that's good for climate. People who live in cities have lower uh, carbon footprints than people who live in rural areas, draw, drive longer distances, takes more you know, for services, et cetera. But increasing urbanization is also good for diseases who like to spread quickly uh, in urban populations, as we're seeing with COVID-19. So is there a clash between urbanization and sort of disease prevention or disease uh, response? Yeah, it's a good question. A lot of people are scratching their heads about the wisdom of everyone moving to cities these days in the face of COVID. And, you know, I think these issues are somewhat separate. It turns out that, you know, with, with things like COVID and and even Ebola or other recent emerging infections, cities had a had a had a role in in spurring their spread. But you know the the primary fault here is not in urban existence. Uh, it it gets back to the points that Brian uh, was raising earlier, which is you know the, the infections are getting to people usually outside of cities, um, usually in uh, forests, uh, sometimes in in agricultural uh, livestock settings, and you know, it turns out that, you know, city dwellers in the United States may have opportunities to lower their carbon footprint because they're not as driving as much. But, uh, you know, it's hard to say that that's true across the world in all cases. And it really depends on how we design our cities. And, and you know, one of the things that COVID reinforces is how important surveillance is. Many uh, folks have already talked about the need to uh, do healthcare system strengthening as a core part of dealing with pandemic preparedness so that we can both detect and, um, you know, help treat those who may be getting infected first. So, so I think we have to focus on the issue of urbanization and all it can afford us in terms of carbon um, and other sustainability concerns, and also recognize the other issue, which is how we're doing business with the biosphere and optimize both. I'm Greg Dalton. You're listening to a Climate One conversation about COVID, climate, and their implications for public health. Coming up, pathogens on the move in a destabilized climate. You have diseases that are typically thought of as being travel associated or being associated with the tropics. And so I think we can expect, you know, the health system to be increasingly stressed by these types of climate-induced health problems, along with everything else we're grappling with, say, during a pandemic like COVID-19. That's up next when Climate One continues. 
Sponsorship for this podcast is from the new book, Cranky Uncle vs. Climate Change, an illustrated guide on how to talk to climate deniers. Dr. John Cook, founder of the website Skeptical Science, takes us on an educational tour through the world of climate disinformation. He provides insightful and often humorous tips for debunking popular myths. Our listeners ask me all the time how to talk to climate change deniers. Now I can suggest a copy of Cranky Uncle vs. Climate Change. It's a funny and informative read for people of all ages and great preparation for those holiday dinners with your own cranky uncle. Changing people's minds is a difficult task, but identifying and preventing the spread of misinformation with proven data and scientific evidence can be just as important. Pick up your copy of Cranky Uncle vs. Climate Change today everywhere books are sold. For more information, visit crankyuncle.com. This is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton, and we're talking about the public health implications of COVID and climate change with Brian Allen, Associate Professor of Entomology at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, Aaron Bernstein, pediatrician at Boston Children's Hospital and Interim Director of the Center for Climate Health and the Global Environment at the Harvard School of Public Health, and Barbara Gottlieb, Director of Environment and Health with Physicians for Social Responsibility. She describes how PSR is working to engage doctors and nurses who learn little, if anything, about climate change in medical school to be messengers for climate as a health issue. We do this really in in three ways. The first thing that we do is, of course, education. We train health professionals on issues that, as you're saying, they didn't learn in medical school, uh, whether that is what are the causes of climate change or what are its health implications. And then we produce educational materials ranging from handouts to white papers to virtually encyclopedic uh, compendia of information on the health impacts of fracking because health professionals are the ideal translators of scientific information. Um, We know that there are very trusted messengers on all issues of human health. And um, certainly, I think uh, Anthony Fauci is the the living proof of that today. A lot of the health professionals we work with uh, do similar kinds of roles, translating uh, the scientific material into, what does this mean for my family? Uh, How could this be affecting my health? And most of all, what can we do about it? Uh, the third thing that we uh, that we do is we have a program that we call Climate Ambassadors, and these are some of our very best, most uh, most knowledgeable, and also most proactive volunteers. And we use them to bring these health messages into the public sphere. So sometimes what they're doing is they're writing articles for the newspaper. These could be op-ed articles, or sometimes it's something as simple as a letter to the editor that's talking about. What, what does sea level rise mean for my community? Why are there floods with, with uh, full moons in the city of, of Miami? What does this mean for health and, and what can I do about it? They also uh, engage more directly in uh, policy advocacy. That's the second area that we work in. Because as trusted health messengers, they really are the right people to show how taking action on climate change is possible, it's feasible, But to have the adequate impact on the planet that we need, it really has to be at the level of policy. And so our health professionals may visit their members of Congress. Uh, They may testify before the EPA at uh, public hearings. We even have a lawsuit currently against the EPA uh, on on a question of um, limiting methane leakage uh, from oil and gas wells as one means of slowing uh, climate change. And then another thing that we do is to push so that uh, the future generations of of doctors and nurses are better educated on these issues. Um, So we're pushing for the inclusion of climate change in medical school curriculum. 
we've achieved that in small measures in some schools like the University of California in San Francisco, University of South Florida. And most excitingly, uh, one of our members introduced and championed a resolution that was eventually passed by the American Medical Association, the AMA, uh, calling on medical schools to introduce climate change all throughout medical education, including the ongoing uh, medical education of doctors. I remember during the climate march in Washington, D.C., seeing healthcare professionals being very vividly in their, in their scrubs marching down uh, n- near the White House and the, and the Capitol. Ari Bernstein, you know, what Barb is calling for is kind of po- politicization or might be outside the comfort zone of people leaving uh, the clinical setting to get into the political ring. Uh, is that something that you see doctors willing to do? Is that something you're willing to do, go out in the streets or march or go? I know you've testified before Congress probably. Yeah, you know, I think it's a really important question because we have to acknowledge that climate change is politicized. And I think one role that um, people in healthcare can have is, is helping to depoliticize it because it really isn't a political issue uh, as to the nature of the problem or what's at stake. It's a scientific matter. And, and so to get people on the same page that we're facing a health problem and that the actions we need to take are actually really important to improving people's health right now, there's no question, I would agree with, with, with uh, Dr. Gottlieb exactly, that healthcare providers have a critical part of that. Uh, I, I think it's important to recognize as well that when it comes to climate change and health and engaging the medical community, and I'll speak for my own kind, um, but this you know, obviously includes nurses and, and all those who are in the front lines of care provision. Uh, we have to do a better job of making the case that climate change isn't just a health issue, which it is, and that it affects large populations and, uh, you know, it's bad for asthma, it's bad for infections. We have to make it a matter of medical practice. We expect clinicians to take this issue seriously beyond their personal lives, to take it really as a professional concern. We need to make the case that it is, in fact, affecting how we do our jobs. And so we partnered with the New England Journal of Medicine, uh, the Harvard Global Health Institute, Sea Change in Harvard, and launched a, a, a series of symposia. We had the first in February, which really are intended to, to make the case that this is a medical issue. It's about how doctors prescribe medicines. It's about our ability to do our jobs. Uh, and it's about the quality of care that people uh, expect to get in the United States. And we hope that through, through showing these clear ties to the delivery of care that really get into the day-to-day lives of how nurses and doctors do our jobs, it'll give ever more reason for folks in healthcare to speak up and to make clear that we really need to take climate action if we're going to continue to practice uh, and do our jobs. Brian Allen, it's hard to remember now during COVID, but I certainly remember the Zika virus was sort of gradually marching north. And I've seen into Florida and I've seen maps that show the Zika uh, boundaries well into central California. You study the transmission of diseases through uh, mosquitoes, ticks, et cetera. What are we looking at in the future of a climate destabilized world? How we will be vulnerable to new diseases that, I don't know, malaria, we thought we'd banned from California, but it's coming back. Yeah, the impacts of climate change on infectious disease is complex. And so it's one of the big challenges in our field is to try to understand the different pathways by which a changing climate can alter the transmission of diseases that currently affect the human population, and also try to integrate this with efforts to predict future infectious disease emergence. Uh, mosquito-borne diseases like Zika virus are often put forward as the some of the best candidates for diseases that may be exacerbated by climate change, and I think that's that's a reasonable concern for 
a number of reasons, but one is the expanding northward distribution of uh, some subtropical uh, mosquito vectors like the mosquitoes that transmit Zika dengue virus, uh, which currently occur in portions of the southern U.S. And you're absolutely right if you think back to a time when these did not occur because there were previous periods when these mosquitoes had been greatly reduced or even eradicated from some areas. And so we're seeing reemergence of mosquito-borne disease in part because of uh, recovering populations of those mosquito species. Is the U.S. healthcare system prepared for the onset of these kinds of uh, climate-related threats? Yeah, I, I think it's a system-wide challenge, right? So you have um, diseases that are typically thought of as being travel-associated or being associated with the tropics um, that I think the U.S. healthcare system has not really had to grapple with at any large scale. Um, I think we can also see this as kind of compounding in terms of health effects. So some of the same uh, health impacts uh, from climate will be driven by uh, other other factors like changing air quality and increasing heat stress. And so I think we can expect you know the health system to be increasingly stressed by these types of climate induced health problems, along with everything else we're grappling with, say during a pandemic like COVID nineteen. If you're just joining us, we're talking about COVID-19 and climate change with Ari Bernstein, a pediatrician and interim director of the Center for Climate, Health, and the Global Environment at the Harvard School of Public Health, Barb Gottlieb, Director of Environment and Health at Physicians for Social Responsibility, and Brian Allen, Associate Professor of Entomology at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. Ari Bernstein, what do you see as the biggest looming climate-related public health threats, water, heat, et cetera? You know, there's plenty to choose from, uh, but you don't have to know uh, anything other than uh, climate change puts at risk things like water and food. Those are probably the two most important consequences. And that's as true in the United States as it is anywhere. And there's, you know, between the droughts and the saltwater intrusion and fires uh, burning up crops, uh, heat, wilting crops, et cetera. it's going to make people move. And that's what we're seeing now. You look at population displacement, uh, people being forced to move against their will. Uh, those folks have plenty of infectious diseases. And so we tend to think about climate change affecting insects, which is understandable because insects are subject to where it's hot and cold or wet or dry. But even if we didn't have that, we'd have huge numbers of people. And by huge, you know, if you look at the Syrian refugee crisis, um, we, we often don't talk about the folks showing up on our southern border as climate-forced uh, uh, refugees, but in fact, the part of what's driven folks to move from Central America are extreme droughts. Um, you look at these numbers, we have more people displaced from their homes in the world right now than at any point since World War II. Many of them are children, and they have huge uh, health risks, not just infectious. Uh, that poses national security risks uh, and, and conflict risks uh, internally. So the things we need to do are not just critical to giving our children a future that's livable, but that they're going to get at the health problems that I, as a pediatrician, for example, have a really hard time dealing with today, namely things like obesity. Uh, We know that high red meat processed meat diets are extremely unhealthy, and they're also very carbon intensive and eating more plants, less carbon intensive, healthier. We know that exercising more active transit, all these things are going to help with BMI and mental health. So we have a huge problem with mental health, both incidents in the United States as well as treatment. And we have ever more evidence that air pollution from burning fossil fuels contributes to mental health burdens. Heat contributes to mental health burdens. Uh, We know that green space can potentially prevent mental health conditions. And, you know, there's studies looking at children over a decade showing that those that have more 
access to green space when you control for many things that would you know increase risk for mental health have way less mental health problems and so you know it's just staring us in the face these are things we need to be doing anyway and we would benefit from anyway we're going to spend 2.4 i think it's maybe more now trillion dollars to deal with COVID after the fact the kinds of conservation that would be required to protect the biosphere of an estimated 100 billion 110 billion dollars a year we would get 20 years of protecting half the habitats on Earth, which would include deforestation causing climate change, for a fraction of the cost of what we're spending now after the fact. And that would come with enormous health dividends for people right now that we can seize upon, that these things don't happen in 10 years or five years. You stop burning coal in a power plant or burning gas in a car, people lead healthier lives the next week. Uh, and, and so I just see just the immense opportunity here to take actions that are both going to provide for a healthier present, they're going to potentially buffer against pandemic risk, and of course, they're going to give the future uh, that we really want our children to have. An ounce of cure. Um, Rob Gottlieb, I'd like to hear your response to what Ari suggested as kind of changing the economic incentives for the healthcare system for better health and for better climate outcomes. Oh, I think we couldn't agree more. The doctors, the nurses, the technicians, all of the health professionals who are members of our organization, I think are motivated by real, really deep, profound concern about um, people's lives, people's well-being, and how we as a society are meeting them. And in, in fact, we would love to see some really sweeping changes in, uh, in the way health care is organized and provided in this country. I'd also like to underscore one of the other things Dr. Bernstein was saying, which has to do with the, the importance of prevention rather than treatment. Uh, we're finding that treating uh, the COVID-19 epidemic pandemic is extremely difficult. Well, it's going to be more difficult or virtually impossible to treat climate change. You can't treat climate change. And yet the kinds of prevention that need to take place are not really in the medical realm. We really have to look at these larger questions of how our society is, um, is powered, if you will. And I guess I mean that in both senses, both in terms of our use of fossil fuel and then in terms of how power is wielded uh, through our government structures. We need uh, our government to be much more responsive than it is now uh, to recognizing the connections between unhealthy uh, fossil fuels, unhealthy population, and a really uh, endangered future for our younger generations. All right, Bernstein, there's something there which is uh, treating climate change. COVID, as bad as it is, we know it will pass. It may be a year or two. Uh, climate change is permanent and is only going to accelerate. So as anxious as people are right now about when's this COVID going to end, climate's not really going to end. So I'd like to hear you on sort of, you know, there's an end to COVID, but climate, it's not like the end is a different situation. Yeah, you know, I think it's important to recognize that we have a window of opportunity to really flatten the curve when it comes to climate change. And the other side of it is the equity piece. So as with COVID, any of these you know, health crises, and climate is very much a health crisis, um, it, it, it just amplifies the inequalities in our society. And that doesn't work for anybody. It especially doesn't work for the poor, but it doesn't work for anyone. And I think that's what's becoming grossly apparent now. Um, and and you, you, you talked about how you know, the climate is going to be changed for a long time. And that's absolutely true. 
Um, but I want to underscore uh, something that Professor Allen said earlier, which is, you know, we can adapt to the climate and we might even help some of our fellow species adapt to the climate. We're trying to figure out how to save species from climate change. But the reality is, is that once a shred of the fabric of life is gone, once we lose a piece of the biological diversity on the planet, it really is gone forever. I mean, you know, people talk about cloning woolly mammoths back into existence and, you know, maybe one day that'll happen, but it may not work very well. And so we have to recognize that while we're immensely and understandably distraught right now about a, a, a disaster in front of us, uh, and it's causing as much damage to our health as it is to our economic wellness, the GDP effects and the Wall Street effects, even the healthcare effects, as enormously painful as they are, we're going to find a way, you know, uh, as best we can through this, we're going to lose a lot of people along the way. But it turns out that with the biosphere, that's not possible. Uh, and we also don't have another planet to go to. And I think that's why as a clinician, there's a particularly important role for us because it's like taking care of a patient. We recognize that, you know, if I have a baby that I'm taking care of who's a month of age or less, that baby has a fever like the planet. Um, I don't presume that everything's going to be okay down the road. I know based upon evidence that there's about a 10% chance that there's a bacterial infection causing that fever. The vast majority of those are from urinary tract infections. Those are bad. They're not necessarily life-threatening. We got some time, but there's a small percentage of them of bloodstream infections and meningitis that they'll kill that child. And so what do we do? Well, even though the chances are probably around maybe 2-1%, we do all the tests we can possibly do to make sure there's no bacteria in that child's body, and we give antibiotics before we know the answer. Why? Because waiting for the answer is malpractice. We would be sued. Well, think about that in the context of the planet. Right now, we have one planet, last I checked. And we know that biodiversity is disappearing, as I alluded to, at an unprecedented rate. The climate is being pushed to a place that we, frankly, have never survived. That looks a lot to me like a, an infant with a fever. And so, you know, whatever the badness ahead is, and we can talk a lot about how bad it's going to be, but it's pretty clear it's going to be plenty bad to justify doing the things that we already know how to do right now to get rid of the problems that are already affecting us, even if climate change weren't happening. Listening to a conversation about pandemics and public health in a destabilized climate. This is Climate One. Coming up, signs of hope in a time of crisis. We're coming out of our current experience with the understanding that science really does matter. Science matters and doctors matter. We've got valuable, useful information and trusted messengers. That's up next when Climate One continues. This is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. We're talking about coronavirus, climate, and public health with Barbara Gottlieb, Director of Environment and Health with Physicians for Social Responsibility. Erin Bernstein, Interim Director of the Center for Climate Health and the Global Environment at the Harvard School of Public Health. And Brian Allen, Associate Professor of Entomology at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. Let's pick up the program with our lightning round, starting with a question to Brian Allen about how long COVID-19 can live on hard surfaces. Oh, it depends on the surface. Um, so uh, from the data I've seen come from the CDC, uh, maybe something in the neighborhood of 24 hours on cardboard, uh, maybe two to three days on plastic or stainless steel. 
uh, probably shorter amounts of times on fabric. Yeah, nailed that one. Um, Ari Bernstein, the governor of which state with some of the highest per capita cases of the virus has been criticized for botching the pandemic response by insisting, quote, our state is never going to be China. I, I will freely admit, I have I, not only do I not know, I'm not going to guess because the last thing I want to know do is put a governor in that <laughs> Position. So it's uh, Mississippi Governor Tate Reeves, uh, one of the last states to uh, also to put in place a shelter and um, place order. Barb Gottlieb, which government agency has suspended all operations for the first time in its 60 year history due to coronavirus? All its operations. <clears throat> of course, I'm most focused on the uh, freeze on operational uh, implementation by the Environmental Protection Agency. I'm not sure that's the one. The Peace Corps has ceased operations Uh. for the first time. Dr. Bernstein, name the drug also used to treat lupus, malaria, and arthritis that some studies show might be effective in the treatment of coronavirus. So I object to the question, but you're looking for hydroxychloroquine. And the reason I object to the question is because there is one study. It was not exactly a study that would say anything about whether hydroxychloroquine would or would not be. Uh, effective at treating the virus. So that could be one of the many myths or bunk information floating around uh, in this I mean, swirl. we don't, I think the fair answer is we don't know. We do know the drug has risks. Uh, what we don't know in this instance is whether the drug has benefits. And, and I, I just want to emphasize, and, and this is an equity piece, and I, it's worth saying, because we see people of means hoarding drugs. Uh, which in my view is is irresponsible. And many of these drugs, I'm sorry to say, are being prescribed by clinicians, medical doctors in this country. And those drugs, like hydroxychloroquine, are life-saving for people with diseases who need them. So before we go on a binge on drugs, which we do not understand whether or not they are safe or effective, we need to recognize that there are people who need those drugs right now, and they're very effective. So can we please do that? Can we please, as providers, prescribe medications for the people who need them and not for those who are better off, who, frankly, we don't even know if they're going to benefit? Yeah, thank you for sharing that. There's this sort of hoarding impulse, this fear impulse that's driving a lot of these reactions is, um, yeah, troubling to see. Uh, Brian Allen, this is true or false. Brian Allen, the U.S. banned travelers from China from entering the U.S. early on in the crisis, one of the few moves by the Trump administration that's been applauded by experts. True or false? Depends on what you mean by early in the crisis, (laughs) but it is true uh, that there was a ban on travelers from China. Dr. Bernstein, uh, true or false, the United States is now testing 100,000 people a day. It has tested the most total people and the most per capita. I know the first part is true. Uh, I'm not sure about the last part. Yeah, this was but one. I'll of, say true. The first part is true, uh, but not the, the most total people per capita. We've tested approximately one out of 273. Uh, South Korea has tested one in every 119. Germany, one in 90. Um, so that's, that's one of the ones that's uh, not so true coming out of the White House. Brian Allen, as the world comes to a standstill, there have been stories all over the globe about blue skies and clear water not seen in decades. One story even shared that dolphins had returned to the canals of Venice. Is this true or false? I believe the particular anecdote about dolphins in the canals of Venice is false. Um, There are some indications that air quality has improved uh, as a result of uh, downturn in economic activity. 
Right. And the water, the water's clearer in Venice, but not, not the dolphins. Barb Gottlieb, who suggested that people over 70 would be willing to give their lives in order to save the economy for their grandchildren? Ooh, I think, uh, was that the governor of Texas suggesting that uh, he and his, uh, he, he would be willing to do the same and he assumes that others like his, uh, his parents or his grandparents might have done the same. So we should all be willing to step up like that. Lieutenant Governor of Texas, Dan Lieutenant Patrick, said he's willing to uh, keep, is willing to exchange your survival for keeping America that all America loves uh, for your children and grandchildren. If that's the exchange, I'm all in. Also a person who said he thinks that climate has been in the hands of God for a long time and he wants to, wants to leave it there. Aaron Bernstein, which White House advisor made an appearance at the press briefing recently to clarify that the federal stockpile of medical supplies is for, quote, us and not the states? Uh, that's Jared Kushner. Correct. Last one. Brian Allen, the biggest annual climate conference, the Conference of Parties 26, was scheduled for November. It was postponed until 2021. Uh, where was it going to be held this year? Oh, I'm not sure. Glasgow uh, was where it was going to be held. Um, Ari, I'd like to ask you about this. As a pediatrician, how do you talk to children about something as scary as COVID and climate? Very yeah, scary it's time. A, it's uh, you know, it's a it's a good question, and and pretty much every parent I can imagine, and certainly every parent I know is is dealing with that. You know, I think one of the things we've learned is that children are not are not idiots. Um, you know, we, we we have a habit of trying to shield them from things and pretending they don't understand. And 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 the first point is that it is important to talk about it. And I, I think, you know, being clear, uh, saying that. You know, there's there's an infection. Most children get the infections. <laughs> They've had ear infections. Um, and that we're doing all of these things. You know, we're asking you to wash your hands more. We're asking you not to go to school. We're asking all of this. And I think this is one of the critical parts of it. And, and frankly, our children uh, teach us so much about how to behave in, in crises like this. We're doing all this not just to protect our family. But more importantly, we're doing it to protect the people in our community. We're doing it because we have a responsibility to take care of the people around us. And, and man, I, there is not a child I've ever met that doesn't get that. And what's amazing to me in watching my, my children you know, deal with this is how they have taken to this uh, so strongly. And, and, and they've been enormously tolerant of, of a social disruption that I think many people would have expected children to fly off the handle with. Uh, they have managed with grace beyond comparison, in my view. So I think the messages are twofold. Being clear that this is an infection. Fortunately, children seem to be generally better off than, than adults, but it's, it's there. And that's the reason we're doing all these things uh, that we're not normally doing. And how this is a sign of doing things for other people that we care about. Um, and I think instilling that idea is, is just so important as trying to understand some silver lining that we can get from this. Because heaven knows, um, not only is that sentiment critical for this, it's critical for climate change. Uh, and, and so cultivating this understanding, I think, is an enormous opportunity. Brian, how about the journey of your students at the University of Illinois in terms of their early approach to COVID and then and climate, which is further away? How have you seen them change their thinking about this as it's uh, as it's spread? 
It's been an incredible journey for us. I'm, I'm teaching a class on pandemics during a pandemic. Um, and so it's been a really surreal experience. Uh, we've been tracking COVID-19 since the beginning of the semester. Uh, you know, one thing I'm very impressed with uh, by this generation of college students is they seem to take the long view that climate change is a, a big risk to their health and the health of the planet. And so, you know, I see an impressive level of understanding and concern about that problem. Um, watching them, you know, sort of react to the uh, COVID-19 pandemic as, as it, you know, played out before our eyes. I mean, I think our generation, their generation hasn't really experienced an event of, of this level of disruption in their lives. And I think you have to go back to, say, my grandparents' generation to really go to a time in U.S. history when people experienced major, you know, ground-shaking events like this. Um, so, you know, I'm impressed by the poise with which this generation of college students has responded to this crisis. They're going to be directly impacted by it. They're graduating into an uncertain job market and an uncertain economy. Uh, many of them are experiencing disruption in their plans. Students who are planning to take the MCAT so they could go to medical school in the fall uh, are seeing MCAT exams uh, postponed. And some of them are now considering changing their you know, uh, plans for timing of when they'll go to medical school uh, because of that. Uh, so, you know, I'm optimistic it's going to create a generation of uh, public servants who are going to be, you know, very aware of their role in our society and their ability to um, shape, you know, future events in a positive way. Um, so I, I'm encouraged by, you know, how that generation is responding. I'm worried for them because I think they're going to face an uncertain future and challenges that, that I didn't have to face at a similar career stage. Um, but I, I guess in terms of thinking about you know, who our futures, uh, who will have our future in their hands. I, I like to think that this generation is up to the challenge. All those things. I'd like to uh, wrap up by asking each of you, uh, starting with uh, Brian Allen, you know, how are you coping during this time? You know, sitting, knowing what you know about diseases and the spread of pandemics, uh, maybe maybe your knowledge comforts you, maybe it makes you worry. How are you coping with, you know, with this field at this time where we're all cooped up and, and such a scary time? Yeah, I'll say I feel very privileged to have this be less disruptive to my life than it is for others. I'm able to work remotely. I'm teaching my class online, which has been an adventure, but I'm enjoying it. Uh, I can do much of my other work remotely. And it, for me, has been balancing to think about this from more of an academic standpoint or more of a you know topic alike to topics I study. And as a result, um, you know, I can kind of compartmentalize these events and think about it through that lens. Um, so, you know, for me, I've found it manageable. I'm still very worried about my loved ones and making sure that they're all taking the appropriate precautions, especially individuals who are in higher risk groups. Um, so trying to use what expertise I have to relay to friends and family members in a way that they find palatable, uh, my concern for them and my desire for them to, you know, take as many precautions as they can. Speaking of precautions, Ari Bernstein, are, are you wearing a, a mask in public yet? Uh, I'm not really going out much, so mm -hmm. uh, save for when I have to go to work, and then I get a mask. And Harvard Medical School has enough supplies, protective supplies. Uh, well, the, the, <laughs> the medical schools is, is you know students are all re learning remotely at this point. The students um, are not working in, in the hospitals. Um, you know, I think that the supply the supply concerns are real, um, and we're going to do the best we can given what what we've got. And I'm 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 actually very grateful to many within our state 
who have worked tirelessly to try and do anything they can to get more protective equipment. I mean, I've seen everything, you know, obviously from our governor and the sport teams, the Patriots and the Celtics, um, but even local hardware stores. I mean, I have a colleague who, who went to our local hardware store who just donated their entire inventory of, of masks um, to a hospital, to Boston Medical Center, and uh, which is our safety net hospital. Uh, and, and so, you know, People are stepping up um, and, you know, I'd like obviously for protective equipment to fall from the skies. Uh, uh, that's not going to happen. And we're probably going to be in the thick of this uh, as thick as it's going to get, at least here in the coming weeks. So, um, you know, people are going to, you know, what's, what's astounding to me. And, you know, you asked about coping. I, I, I feel similarly to Brian. I've really got nothing to cope with in the scheme of this. Um, and, and I, you know, I'm working in the hospital, but not nearly as much as lots of people I know. And I, you know, people are throwing themselves in front of a virus that, that could really transform lives. Bart, Bart Gottlieb, how are you coping and what precautions are you taking now in this time? Well, I'm uh, working remotely and, uh, of course, relying heavily on the technologies that we're so lucky to have for connectivity, um, conversation with, uh, colleagues all across the country, um, it's, it's a frightening time. I think uh, all of us feel that. And certainly for my family and for my neighbors, uh, we're, we're all taking the precautions that we can. Uh, the precautions are necessary. They also take their toll. Uh, social distancing is necessary. And it's, a, it's, it's, it's painful not to be able to uh, chat with the neighbors over the back fence or uh, um, hug my parents when I go by their house to drop off their groceries. Uh, but these are the things that we need to do. These are the responsibilities that we all accept uh, because this is what we have to do to protect one another and keep ourselves safe and strong. I guess for trying to keep an even keel, uh, I, I try to get outside and uh, walk outdoors and uh, walk the dog and uh, wave to the neighbors from a distance. And I also take great strength. I, I derive strength from the examples of the people, especially the health professionals, but not solely, whom we see so, so bravely carrying on under these difficult and frightening circumstances. Uh, my heart really goes out to, to our, our fellow um, Americans and people all around the world who are unable to work and don't have an income and, and face uh, really frightening prospects in terms of how are we going to proceed? How are we going to buy the food that we need? Uh, how are we going to pay the bills? How do we protect our homes? Um, and so I guess what I do is I, I take that in and I turn it into a rallying call. You know, these are the problems we need to face. We need to make sure that we face these as a, as a society. We need to watch out for everyone. We need to protect those who are most vulnerable economically and physically because we really are all in this together. You've been listening to a Climate One conversation about the public health implications of COVID-19 and climate change with Barbara Gottlieb, Director of Environment and Health with Physicians for Social Responsibility, Aaron Bernstein, a pediatrician at Boston Children's Hospital and Interim Director of the Center for Climate Health and Global Environment at the Harvard School of Public Health, and Brian Allen, Associate Professor of Entomology at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. To hear more Climate One conversations, subscribe to our podcast at climateone.org. Please help us get more people talking about climate by giving us a rating or review wherever you get your pods. It really does help. 
Kelly Pennington directs our audience engagement. Tyler Reed is our producer. Sarah Catherine Coxon is the strategy and content manager. Steve Fox is director of advancement. Devin Strolovich edited the program. Our audio team is Mark Kirshner, Arnav Gupta, and Andrew Stelzer. Dr. Gloria Duffy is CEO of the Commonwealth Club of California, where our program originates. I'm Greg Dalton.